Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, I'm your decoder, Simon. I'm here, one of my writers. In this case, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. Has written me a script. Halloween candy. The good, the bad, and the poisons. I feel like... <laughs> Oh no, the date of submission was the 12th. Dennis is very professional. He always includes at the top Dennis and his, his full name for Simon Whistler, decoding the unknown. And then he includes a submission date. And I'm thinking, like, as soon as I get this, I'm recording this in December. I'm like, yo, this is definitely my fault. This was definitely supposed to be a Halloween episode. I should record this like four months ago. But no, it's actually not. So uh, I don't know what that's about. I guess we're just talking about Halloween candy and december because why not and i hate capitalizing on trending views apparently on youtube if you're listening to this as a podcast i don't think it matters that much because people just subscribe to the podcast and then you listen thank you so much by the way leave a review if you haven't already why not and let's jump in ah halloween that's <laughs> That beautiful time of year that was probably four or five months ago by the time. It, it could be six months. It could literally be the opposite side of the year by the time you're hearing this because I filmed these so far ahead. But uh, well organized as ever. That beautiful time of year when parents all around the globe teach their offspring how to extort goods from strangers by threatening property damage. Yeah, Halloween's also weird, right? It's that one time of the year where it's like, no, 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 you can definitely accept candy from strangers. In fact, go to the stranger's house and ask them for candy. And the rest of the time, it's like do not talk to strangers do not don't don't do it don't take their candy they're just looking to predate you Nothing says fun family activity more clearly than seeking out random residents in the middle of the night with your kid dressed as a burglar or a killer clown. <laughs> a killer clown? <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Dennis, do people really do that? I'll be like, no, 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 you can go as like, my kid went as Peppa, my, granted my kid's three years old, but she went on Halloween this year as Peppa Pig. <laughs> killer clown, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yet in the eyes of the public, it's somehow those junior criminals who are in stranger danger. When I went out trick-or-treating as a little kid, my mum had always been excessive concerned with tampered candy. Even though I was allowed to collect sweets throughout the whole night without any parental supervision, she didn't take any risks with the treats that I brought home. <laughs> I don't know if I'd let my kids go out by themselves. I guess so there's a point when they get, you know, when they're like teenage teenagers. I don't know, what age can a kid go out by themselves? I don't know, I wouldn't be like... I don't know, I don't know. Like, I feel like I know nothing about parenting beyond the age of my kids. So, like, ask me something about a three-year-old, I'll tell you. Ask me something about a one-year-old, I'll tell you. Ask me something about, like, how do you deal with a six-year-old? Like, I don't know, but when it happens, I'm going to read about it, aren't I? <laughs> Google's amazing. Like, you'll read some problem. Like, my kid was like, you know, when they did something naughty, I was like, I was like, how do I deal with this? I don't want to shout at them. Like, I, I'm, and I'm not against, like, raising my voice at my kids, but I want to save it for, like, like, the other day, they were going nuts in the car. And I'm trying to drive, and I'm driving through the city, and it's, like, super hard. And they're like, bah, 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 bah. And I'm like, hey, enough. And they both shut up because it's, like, rare for dad to shout. <laughs> You know, you have to be serious. But like, I looked it up on Google. It's like, how do you deal with a kid who's being naughty without shouting? And it like, there's the, there's like an article, and it's like so long. And I read the whole thing. It takes me like five minutes, and it's got all these tips. And then I use the tips. Boom! Totally works. Who would have thought? <laughs> 
It's amazing. It's actually amazing. The internet's amazing. In her cautious and protective way, she insisted on pre-tasting the bulk of it for poison before letting me have my way with the rest. And now that I'm writing this, I do realize that I've been scammed. God damn it, mum. We're gonna talk about this. On the other hand, there is apparently no escaping the flood of alarmist caution alerts during the weeks leading up to Halloween. Colorful ecstasy pills mixed in with M&Ms, razor blades, and needles embedded in chocolate. And this lady's colleague's neighbor's aunt swears she once discovered her son with the complete works of Karl Marx hidden in a peanut butter cup or some hogwash like that. Clickbaity stuff. I feel it's all... I feel it's all just like media clickbait, right? I think I've even made a video about this previously where it's like this. No one does this. Because also just economically, it's like who's like got a stash of ecstasy pills? And is you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to take or sell those ecstasy pills. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give them away to children for free. It makes no sense because... You, you want those pills for yourself. It would be like giving away cocaine. It's an insane thing to do. The media never fails to mention the dangers of accepting treats from strangers as if children were dropping dead by the thousands during the spooky season. But are our streets really haunted by the ghosts of miners who died from cyanide-laced candy bars? Or are those just living children wearing ghost costumes? Has anyone ever checked? <laughs> the important questions, Dennis. <laughs> This is a dad joke and a half. Are you a dad, Dennis? I don't know. I'm like, now I'm a dad, I got those, a new appreciation for dad jokes. Today we're going to do things a little differently. Traditionally, we would start the video by retelling the known facts and then elaborating on a few theories in order to explain them. But the starting position is completely different this time, as the theories are not much of a mystery. The open question is whether we can find a factual underpinning in their support. So, in a way, we're starting at the end and working our way back to the beginning with the occasional socio-philosophical hot takes sprinkled in along the way. And believe me, you're in for a surprising treat. <laughs> Dennis, it sounds like I'm in for a surprising treat in the number of dad jokes in this script, Dennis. <laughs> ah! And puns. Oh, puns. <laughs> Poison candy. Has it ever actually happened? Pay attention and listen closely as the next time a windowless and somewhat scuffed van pulls up next to you during a lonely night walk with the driver hastily inviting you into the candy-filled cargo hold, you may use this episode as a reference point to make an informed decision. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> if a van pulls up next to you, let's say you're a kid and you're listening to the show, in this case, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> your parents <laughs> need to set up some sort of filtering on your uh, devices. Um, don't, don't, that's not Halloween. That's a pedophile. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Spooky stories. They pill it up in plastic and then they distribute it. It's very hard to detect. Warns the presenter, gazing deep into the soul of every parent watching Fox News. Then he, then the camera pans to another anchor. I mean, basically, parents have a decision to make. She adds frantically before offering only a single option to choose from. You don't let your kids get that candy. Oh my god, the clickbait stop i know it's uh, and every halloween i see you see these like uh news titles around the web like be careful it's like do the statistics bear that out because that's what we're looking at in today's video and i get the feeling the answer is no because no one wants to give away their cocaine we've discussed this the short exchange wraps up with a report which aired just before this year's halloween the subject was rainbow fentanyl a dangerous synthetic opioid that takes its prefix from the bright colors in which it's usually sold a very similar appearance 
adherence to sugar pastels for kids. Of course, this was neither the first nor the last of these warnings. Some similar PSAs ensued through seemingly every major and minor news outlet across all political spectrums. Even the Drug Enforcement Administration urged parents to be wary of colorful pills in case they're irresponsible enough to let their children go trick-or-treating at all. There is absolute unanimity. That word's hard to say. Unanimity. Unanimity. It feels like it's got too, too many syllables, like effortlessless. Effortlessless. Effortlessly. Effortlessly. There you go. That one is a nightmare. Among many, many public opinion leaders, deadly drugs could be in your child's treat bag, so share this article right now. Are you are you worried about the children online news source? Or are you, are you worried about getting enough clicks and getting that sweet, sweet ad buddy? Because, you know, this video, I'm sure we'll get plenty of views and people will watch it. Maybe if I titled it Halloween Candy is Murdering Your Children, more people would click on it. But then I'd feel like a piece of shit, so I'm not going to do that because it, it it's you know disingenuous and uh, bad reporting <coughs> fox news and everyone else to be honest stop it those pesky drug dealers will use halloween to make our children addicted to their products so vote for me because i'll crack down hard on crime no that doesn't make sense so okay you know my economic argument about there's no reason for them to be giving away ecstasy pills look an eight-year-old is not gonna have an ecstasy pill have a great time and be like mommy i need to increase my pocket money because so i can go out and buy more ecstasy pills that's an insane argument no drug dealers doing that and i mean drug dealers of course there are drug dealers who are like bad people but i feel like i mean it depends like because my interaction with drug dealers is just people who sell weed basically <laughs> maybe there's like a heroin dealers are a bit more bad people like but i don't know they're not they don't want to get kids addicted to drugs they want to get like 20 year olds addicted to drugs <laughs> great you get the idea we've all seen the ads at some point during the last two years this pervasive concern has of course raised received new impetus due to several u.s states liberalizing their marijuana regulations this controversial amendment has been met with a moralistic yet influential opposition which fed the slightly exaggerated vision of an utterly drug-ridden generation to karens throughout the nation and beyond while there may be valid arguments for restrictive drug policies the debate has been largely fought on the grounds of fear i mean the the legalization like i feel about this and like edibles and stuff that are made to look like cola bottles and stuff i could absolutely imagine my kids getting their hands on that and then <laughs> being like, oh shit you've got to be careful with your drugs and as halloween approached the usual uneasy gut feeling struck a very similar chord resulting in a self-reinforcing synergy effect between those two terrifying notions in the minds of some uh, there was suddenly no hiding from dangerous substances any anywhere thus shoving unidentified pills from random strangers down your kids throat felt even more insane than before according to pessimistic ex estimates the tradition of trick-or-treating is moribund to some degree <laughs> oh, i feel stupid what does moribund mean <laughs> oh dennis high school level please come on <laughs> let's let's pretend i'm dying okay <laughs> is dying oh it's dying off okay okay dennis if you're watching a note for the future simple words please for my small smooth brain recent statistics show that fewer and fewer parents let their children participate and even among those without children a significant proportion considers it to be critically dangerous the custom is therefore gradually phased out by less risky alternatives such as halloween parties at home or in religious congregation centers oh my god can you imagine my parents would be like yeah yeah yeah, you could go trick-or-treating tonight or uh, we could go to the religious congregation center and uh, celebrate halloween there it's like wait 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 do you mean church <laughs> fuck that noise let's go out and throw some eggs 
Do children trick-or-treating throw eggs? I mean, normally it's like trick-or-treat and it's like, well, if they don't, like, <laughs> if you don't have candy, they're not going to actually throw eggs at your house. Is that a thing? I don't know. Another possible backup plan is the so-called trunk or treating, in which groups of already associated parents would meet in a parking lot and distribute candy to each other's children out of their cars, which is neither weird nor sad. Oh, it's so weird or sad. I don't understand. Why can't we just do it like the rest of the, you know, how the whole fucking industry works? You don't go into a candy shop anywhere. When I was a kid, and this is the most back-in-the-day old man story, but and somehow I'm only 35, but it does feel like I grew up in the past. I would we'd go to the tuck shop at school, and it'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll have 100 grams of uh, cherry cola bottles, I'll have 100 grams of fizzy cola bottles, I'll have 50 grams of like there was this delicious like chocolate thing. It's called like chocolate fudge something. It was so good, but it looked like little poos, um, like animal poo. But that's what we do. And then that's great. They take it the big jar off the wall. I sound like a like 90 year old man right now. They take it off the wall, they pour it into a big scale, and then they're put into a paper bag. Like, but we don't live in those worlds anymore. We live in a world where it's you go in and they sell the little 10p bags of like Haribo bears. Or you know, they're all pre-packed and sealed. Just get those. Why not just get those? And then like any candy that your kid doesn't get that is unsealed that's unsealed, just be like, don't eat the unsealed ones. Don't eat those loose smarties. Don't eat those heroin pills. That kind of thing. Don't eat the fentanyl. COVID likely contributed to this development, of course, but an over- Oh my god, I'm so glad- Like, all of this stuff where you're like, yeah, yeah, so they went to car parks and they did it out of their cars. It's like, how about now that we don't really have to worry about COVID as much, we go back to regular Halloween? Because it's not like, oh no, now now that Hallow- now that COVID's over, I'm, I'm social distancing, I'm never going to the cinema, I stay at home. It's like, no! Now it's not it's all restricted. I'm living my life again, and I love it. <laughs> Although my life is extremely limited these days because at the beginning of COVID, I had a kid. Then I had a second kid more recently, or during COVID, but just like in COVID. And so now I've exited COVID and it's like, yeah. <laughs> please don't we have a baby. Are we going out once this week, wife? <laughs> please, let's go. I want to go to a restaurant. But an overarching downward trend has already been a widespread assumption before the pandemic started. Despite all of this, roughly 15% of households disregarded the urgent warnings last year, donned their witch hats and zombie masks, and went on the prowl for treats. This begs the question, how many rehab kindergartens do we need in consequences? <laughs> Well, it's been roughly three weeks since Halloween now. Oh my god, this is this will be video will probably air in the spring. I'm not even joking. This is crazy. And as leaving aside unverifiable chain letters and share pics, there hasn't been a single recorded case of this fear-mongering becoming reality. No credible reports of any drug lords using Halloween to gain new clientele anywhere. To me, this isn't much of a surprise. Drugs are pretty expensive and risky to purchase. Giving them away for free seems like a pretty horrible business strategy. Obviously, there's the idea of hooking new customers by handing out free samples, yet I imagine toddlers to be the worst possible target customer group that you could think of. However, the narrative of drug dealers on sneaky customer acquisition is only the first of three broad categories that can be delineated. And this, and since this first one is obviously folly, we will not bother with it any further, but in a later chapter we will trace where this widespread fear is coming from and why so many people fall for it. The second category could only be described as trolling. By this, I mean handing out obscene or undesirable yet overall harmless objects such as condoms. Jesus Christ. That is like, okay, I get why you think it could be funny, 
But don't the people who live in areas where kids go tr It's not like kids are going trick-or-treating to like the student village where all the students live or whatever They're probably going trick-or-treating in their neighborhood Which is probably just filled with other people with families and they're not gonna find it very fun like <laughs> No, no one who says parent is gonna find that funny. They're just gonna be like, oh god. I mean, with my kids, I'll just throw it away. But when the kids get older, you'll be like, oh, <laughs> this, this, this is gonna be a conversation. <laughs> School supplies or Brussels sprouts disguised with a thin layer of chocolate. Now that is funny. I like that. Some variations of this are certainly distasteful and unethical, as well as being objectively funny. But there's not so much to be decoded here. Therefore, we're not gonna dwell on them either. Instead, let's focus on category three which is doing harm. As you might be aware, very disturbed individuals are roaming the planet, hurting or even killing others for the lowest of motives. So why not hand out poison candy as a method of straight-up and deliberate murder? On the surface, this does seem like the perfect crime. <sighs> I mean... One, you probably, they'll, you know, they'll trace it back to you somehow, won't they? Like, you have to commit the perfect crime. You can't just think about the perfect crime because you'll make mistakes. Um, but this is like the same thing. Like, before drugs were in the blister packs, there was the, um, someone was poisoning them, right? They were taking the, you know, they'd buy uh, drugs from a pharmacy, they'd swap them out with something poisonous, and then they'd put them back on the shelves in the pharmacy and someone would buy them. But I feel like this happened like once or twice ever and it's just like there's not that many people who are psycho in that way there's people out there who are like yeah i just like murdering i just like plunging a knife into someone's heart and just watching the life go out of their eyes but random poisoning is like you don't even get to watch them die what's the point that's i mean that's what a psycho would think just to clarify that there i don't like watching the life drift out of people's eyes that's bizarre. Once the deadly effect kicks in, it will be impossible to backtrack to where this specific piece of candy came from. Mm, I would say that you're underestimating the police there. The police aren't always brilliant, but for like poison kids and stuff on a mass scale, there's going to be a pretty heavy investigation. They're going to be like, okay, well, which houses did you go to? Cool. Let's narrow it down to like 20 houses. That is not a big group of people. Okay. Well, let's say 15 of them have children, probably not psychos. Then there's five of them. And then there's, and then one of that five is Weird Jeff. <laughs> Guess who's getting called in for questioning, Weird Jeff? Oh, look, Weird Jeff. We found fentanyl on your hands. Jeff, you're going to get the electric chair or the needle um lethal injection i'm assuming this is going on in a state where they have lethal injection because for people who murder kids <laughs> i like it and since the victim gets pretty much chosen at random there won't be any personal ties for the investigators to discover except for the local proximity most physical evidence would literally be swallowed and as long as you don't touch the wrapper without your gloves on how will anyone expose you as the mastermind i don't know dennis the way i just said <laughs> Could cold case archives around the world probably fill to the brim with unsolved deaths related to Halloween? Right? I mean, the stories must come from somewhere. Even if everything has been blown out of proportion by a factor of a thousand, there must be some underlying truth. People would never completely fabricate stories to push an agenda, would they? <laughs> yes, and also to sell advertising. So let me run you through a curated selection of incidents in which tainted Halloween candy allegedly played a role. Though beware, if you are particularly sensitive to kids experiencing bad things such as timely death this episode might be for, might not be for you this is also only a two out of ten on the pedro lopez scale but still uh, this is in reference i do another podcast called the casual criminalist check it out pedro lopez he murdered like 200 fucking children he's a sick fuck and i, I recently discovered he's probably dead which is nice like someone there was a great theory about why pedro lopez he disappeared and he was never caught like 
Um, he, he disappeared. He was wanted and stuff like this. Uh, and people were like, no, 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 he's he definitely been murdered. And then the police didn't give a shit, and they were just like, cool, you murdered Pedro Lopez, <laughs> you may go. And that's why he disappeared. He's not out there killing children still. Uh, but anyway, this is only a 2 out of 10. I can handle that. Assuming the Pedro Lopez is a 10 on the Pedro Lopez scale of 10 out of 10. Several gruesome and heart-wrenching fatalities lay ahead. You've been warned. Due diligence. Henry Coleman was certainly not a family man, but sometimes you just have to roll with the punches. His sister Ida worked exceptionally irregular hours, making it very arduous for her to arrange ordinary childcare. Sometimes she was summoned to duty with only a few minutes' notice, which was apparently the norm for some industries back in the day. Therefore, she entrusted her five-year-old son Kevin to her brother Henry's care whenever she had exhausted all options to no other avail. Such was the case on November the second, nineteen seventy. Five-year-old is the one taking care of the younger, and I know. This is a. Te- it's insane that a company can be like, hello, we need you to come in. It's like, I've got a five year old and a two year old. I can't just come in. I have a three year old and a one year old. It would be like, no, <laughs> I can't do that. But obviously, people need money. And it's an insane. I'm not trying to say. I'm just trying to say companies are shitty. This is. Uh, and whatever labor law this is, is, is broken. But you shouldn't leave your two year old with your five year old. I have a three year old. They, can- they can't take care of themselves. They certainly can't take care of their one year old brother. Such was the case on November the 2nd, 1970. Kevin didn't mind spending a few hours in his uncle's condo, and Henry didn't really care that much either. Wait. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm being an absolute idiot, and I've gone on a tangent for no reason. I don't know why I got it mixed up in my head, but Dennis has obviously written, and you've obviously heard, that he's not left with the five-year-old. He's with his uncle. Jesus Christ. Kevin didn't mind spending a few hours in his uncle's condo, and Henry didn't really care that much either. There was a silent gentleman's agreement between the two of them, which consisted of a rather rather peaceful coexistence. As long as Kevin wouldn't bother Henry in any way, he was allowed to do whatever he pleased. This was obviously a dangerous amount of freedom for a preschooler, but most of the time he wouldn't exploit it. Staying up late and watching TV without anyone policing the chosen program are some nice perks to have, but in reality, Kevin would just calmly sit in the corner, play with a few toys he'd brought over, and wait for his mother to pick him up. Kevin sounds like a good kid. This Monday was something special, however. Being being a huge Halloween fan, Kevin had proven to be a gifted trick-or-treater. A couple of days earlier, he had bagged such enormous stocks of sweets that he could feast on them for months on end. Unfortunately, his mother would not allow them, him to gulp them down all at once. The prospect of spending this very evening at Henry's place was a welcome best blessing. He's like, I'm looking forward to it. I'm gonna pig the fuck out! All he had to do was smuggle his loot over, and then he was free to stuff his belly without restraint. The stars aligned just perfectly. Due to the stress and time pressure, Ida had completely failed to notice that instead of toys, Kevin had packed his bag with a metric ton of Halloween candy. Later that evening, as he spilt his treasure out onto Uncle Henry's carpet, he could hardly believe his luck. A banquet of motley sweets poured out before his eyes, begging to be eaten. And so, he happily sank into an ungodly feeding frenzy. Caramel and toffee, marshmallows and jelly beans, cookies and gummy bears. His lands reached out for every treat he laid his eyes on, and his belly quickly started to swell with sugar and unspeakable joy. And also fentanyl! No, I don't know. I don't know, but I get the feeling because the way this is set up that Kevin's going to get in trouble. It was not long into this binge, though, before Kevin realized that something was wrong. He felt a dull, throbbing pain growing in his abdomen, rendering him almost unable to continue. After a final large bite of nuggety goodness, a torrid of vomit blasted across the room. By the time Henry realized how sick his nephew had suddenly become, the situation had already spun out of control. Of course, Henry's first assumption was that Kevin had simply overeaten 
him. Therefore, he took him to the bathroom in case he needed to vomit some more. But as Kevin wouldn't stop retching and heaving, it became clear something much more serious was going on. When the boy turned completely unresponsive, Henry finally called an ambulance. Yeah, if my kid was throwing up everywhere, I'd be like, okay, let's go sit in the toilet for a little while. But if they continue just heaving and throwing up, it's like, okay, let's call the poison center. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, the poison center will be like, you need to call an ambulance. You'll be like, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, Kevin would never regain consciousness. Dude, Dennis, Matt, fucking hard left, bro. You can't do that. I'm like making a joke, telling a family story, and then it's like, and then he's dead. He put up a heroic fight, but despite intensive medical care, he passed in Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital three days later. Ah, I don't like this. Medical staff instantly grew suspicious of the circumstances. Indeed, excessive amounts of sugar and carbohydrates can pose a serious threat to the digestive tract of young children, though a simple case of too much candy was clearly out of the question here. This gave rise to the theory that toxic Halloween candy had been put in circulation by an unknown individual, with Kevin being the first known victim. When questioned by police investigators, Henry doubled down on his recounting of events. At the same time, Ida would emphatically confirm that her son gathered the sweets from random homes throughout the neighborhood. The obvious conclusion was corroborated by the toxicology analysis of Kevin's stomach contents, which revealed a massive dose of heroin in his system. Oh my god. That is horrible. And when the lab checked one half-eaten chocolate bar, which police had collected from Henry's place, they found the identical heroin quinine powder cocktail sprinkled over it. The case pretty much solved itself. A mysterious murder undoubtedly killed Kevin by lacing Halloween sweets with a deadly dose of drugs. Given the circumstances, there was little hope of ever catching the culprit. Really? They assumed murder? I would not assume murder. I'd be like, someone made a heroin chocolate bar. Uh, because, look, people make, like, I've never made a heroin chocolate bar, but, like, edibles and stuff, like, uh, for, like, pot. It's like, yeah, people do that all the time. And then you'd be like, oh, no. Where's my heroin chocolate? Oh, no. And then what do you do? Jesus Christ, you gotta call in. Like, if that happens, if you've done that, if something has happened like that, just call in an anonymous tip as soon as you can. Just phone up anonymously, somehow, use a payphone, if they still exist, or find a way to do this. Just don't keep silence, just anonymous tip off. Do it. By the next day, the New York Times turned the incident into national news with the following wording. A five-year-old boy who had eaten Halloween candy laced with heroin died today without regaining consciousness. He collected the candy last Saturday on his trick-or-treat rounds. Other news outlets followed suit, citing the New York Times as a source. This prompted parents across the country to instantly dispose of their gathered candy in defiance of their children's tears. Somewhat understandably. I'll just replace the candy. I'll be like, okay, we're going to throw this all away, but we're going to go to the supermarket and shit's going to get wild. (laughs) You don't want to take any risks with a crazy poisoner on the loose. However, there's a big catch to all of this. As Inspector Robert A. Slotka thumbed through the case file, he couldn't shake the feeling that something was amiss. His gut instinct kept him from shelving the case just yet, even though he could not pinpoint where his concerns were coming from. And then he made an observation that would put Sherlock Holmes to shame. The clincher turned out to be that half-eaten chocolate bar with heroin powder sprinkled over it. Slotka, who had a keen eye and vast professional experience with the common street drugs, noticed a very specific peculiarity. You see, the amount of powder matched precisely the dose of a standard pill that you could buy off the corner by mere milligrams. But it was half a candy bar, so you'd expect half a pill of heroin on it, right? This indicated to his razor-sharp mind that someone had laced the candy bar after Kevin ate the first half. What? That's fucked up. Dude, that guy is actually... I know that Dennis is making fun of this, but it's kind of a big brain observation. <laughs> It really is. (laughs) 
Albeit a bit far-fetched, this insight led Robert A. Slotka to question Henry a second time around, but as a suspect, not a witness. After applying the right amount of pressure, Henry collapsed like a house of cards, sobbing as he confessed what had really happened. Brace yourselves as this story punches a bit at the mind. Did he murder his nephew? What a fucking psycho. Hours before Ida brought her son over, Uncle Henry had handled a bunch of heroin quinine pills in roughly the area where Kevin would later spill out his bag. Without realizing it at the time, Henry must have dropped one of the pills on the floor by accident. You can probably see where this is going. Later, when Kevin dumped his sweets onto the rug, Henry's pill got mixed in with the sweets, and the boy accidentally swallowed it. Oh no. And then he, like, covers the chocolate bar in it uh, so he doesn't get into trouble. Ah, oh, dude. This is so sad. Oh, what a fuck up. Be careful with your edibles and shit. Be careful. Especially if you've got heroin edibles, which I didn't even know was a fucking thing, to be honest. Jesus. I guess it's not because he sprinkled it on there afterwards, but I didn't even know heroin pills existed. I thought you had to inject heroin. Although people put like, nah, I know people eat heroin, right? And smoke heroin. Okay, never mind. A little later, after the first moment of shock had passed, Henry realized what must have actually happened. To divert suspicion from himself, he sprinkled the contents of another identical pill on the half-eaten chocolate bar. This way, investigators would hunt down the random and entirely innocent person who had originally given Kevin the chocolate on Halloween. To be fair, he already got away with that plan as it fed into a well-established narrative. Thankfully, this was one of the rare cases of outstanding police work. As it turned out, the candy itself had been absolutely fine, but the carpet hadn't. Shakespearean levels of tragedy. The New York Times did run a follow-up article in the wake of Henry's arrest, but don't get any wrong ideas. This is not like that. That Halloween story is like front page news. This will be like on page like seventy at the bottom in tiny font, being like, "We're really sorry." So sorry. <laughs> How about like newspapers? When you make make a retraction, you have to make it as big as the original story because that would encourage better journalism. Not that I'd actually want that, because when I make a mistake in a video, I'm just like, I'm really sorry in the comments. That was an error. I don't want to make another video talking about this mistake, because that's just... it would Not even the fact that I wouldn't want to do that. It's just no one's going to watch those videos, because no one really cares that much, and then that's going to tank any YouTube algorithmic love that I have, because if you make a video that people hate, that doesn't just... That feel, that is bad for everyone. It's bad for your whole channel. I think. Or is the, it used to be. Maybe it's not so much anymore. I think YouTube's this is not interesting to anyone, so I'm just going to be quiet, but just say that I think like YouTube treats videos a bit more standalone these days. Who knows? Not interesting. Let's move on. This was not a huge retraction, but just a short note literally on page 51. Exactly. No one paid any attention to this twist of event, so the myth of the unknown Halloween poisoner persisted. This is far from the only case in which the press put speed before diligence. In 1990, a Californian girl suddenly died from heart failure after eating Halloween candy. Multiple newspapers reported on this, but failed to rectify their statements after the autopsy confirmed an utterly unrelated heart condition was actually at fault. This same thing happens when a two-year-old boy in 1978 also died from natural causes shortly after munching away in his sweets. In 2001, a girl from Maine succumbed to the particularly severe course of a bacterial infection, though a link to Halloween candy had initially been entertained by local news. The New York Times, which normally has a reputation for being thoroughly fact-checked, turns out to be a repeat offender in this regards. Yeah, New York Times is not like, what's the other one? The New York, the, the tabloid post, New York Post. That feels right. Like, and uh, I don't know. We've got. I, let me use British examples. Like, if you read the Times, you'd be like, oh, you know, it's going to be much more like, you know, it's going to be less splashy titles. You feel like it's going to be better reviewed than the Mirror. 
for example, which is like a tabloid. In 1991, a family father died from a heart attack after evoking the parental tax on his son's Halloween candy. This was pure correlation according to the coroner, yet when he officially released his findings, the New York Times had already spread the news of another Halloween sadism case nationwide. This list could go on and on, but I'll stop for now. Exact statistics will be provided in the fourth chapter. Spotting the underlying pattern is an easy task. Faced with constant pressure to be first, journalists are sometimes willing to sacrifice accuracy for the sake of a scoop. Maintaining an edge in the news cycle is often the difference between winning and losing readers. And when the subject matter is such a sensational one, waiting for the investigation to conclude is apparently rather difficult. So why not print now and retract later? Yeah, of course. Like, And as someone who makes videos and stuff, and I mean, I don't really do stuff that's like current, but sometimes I do. And sometimes, you know, more information comes out. But you're reporting the news. You're reporting something that's going on. Things can change. The problem with this habit is self-evident. Reports of grisly murders spread like wildfire, but nuanced corrections do not. And so, little by little, a collective consciousness is nourished in which everyone knows a diffuse story that never occurred. In the case of Kevin Dawson, the truth had, in a way, been even darker than the initial assumption. So let's follow it up with the obligatory comic relief. Okay. <laughs> Again, hard left turn. Um, I don't know. I don't think that original... The, the, how it... The story turns out the kid was sadly accidentally killed by a family member. I'd say that isn't as dark as he was murdered by a psycho who's like giving heroin pills on chocolate to children that's more crazy in my opinion happy little accidents have you ever found yourself in a situation so unbelievably absurd that even when you could explain everything truthfully you still had to cook up a fictional yet more credible excuse i don't think so i think if i was in some absurd situation i'll be i'd just be like you will not believe what happened to me. I've not been like, well, that was so absurd. I have to lie for something less absurd. I mean, maybe this happens more often than is immediately coming to mind, but I don't think so. No? Well, obviously, you're not Malcolm W. from Hercules, California. He got himself into quite a pickle when he accidentally became a drug kingpin in the autumn of 2000. The best things in life often come, un come unexpectedly. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best thing in life. You'd be like, oh, no, I'm a drug kingpin. It's not good news. Is it? I mean, I guess you're rich. But then he would know, wouldn't he? He'd be like, oh, I know. I, where did your money come from? Where did you get that golden Rolls Royce? <laughs> Drugs. You, you know what you did. You know what you did. His sudden career change started with a very outraged mother reporting a very special surprise to the police. My son found spinach in his Snickers, she told the dispatcher, utterly furious. But I think it's not even spinach. Wait, has he got weed in his Snickers bar? <laughs> That's weird. It wasn't spinach. When police patrol went to inspect the item in question, it turned out to be one of the finest and fanciest strains of good old jazz garbage on the market, pressed into the shape of a chocolate bar and hidden inside a Snickers wrapper. It's kind of genius. The lucky finder, a teen, a drug smuggling. Drug smuggling is genius. Like these little submarines that you read about, where it's like, yeah, no, it's like tiny little submarine made by some drug dealer, and it just the, to sneak drugs into America or whatever. It's crazy. Kind of, I, I'm usually quite impressed by what they're up to, and those are the ones that get caught. The lucky finder, a teenage boy, vowed vigorously to both police and his enraged mother that he'd come into the possession, this possession unintentionally. He admitted to trick-or-treating the day before, but he certainly hadn't asked for any special ingredients. Why the heck would I ask for spinach? He added, somewhat confused at the serious faces all around him. The responsible investigators were initially unsure what to make of this. On the one hand, they found the boy thoroughly credible, so they let him off the hook right away. Then again, as well-trained police agents, they also understood the high-end weed was not usually bestowed on random ungrateful brats. 
In the following days, similar reports from other startled parents in the same city district kept pouring in. I've never heard of this story, but my guess is this could, this dude probably works for like Costco or something, and he's like, oh yeah, Halloween's coming up, so what I'm going to do is I'll just pop into the. Or maybe he doesn't. Even, you don't even work for Costco. Like there was a story here in uh, in Czech Republic where I live, like recently, and it was like some supermarket found like 10 kilos of cocaine in like a banana box from like south america like it had just been shipped in and obviously they've gone to the wrong address because it was not bananas it was coke that had been shipped to the supermarket so i mean i reckon this guy bought like a box of snickers that somehow got misidentified and he's handing it out thinking it's snickers but it turns out to be drugs so i don't think this is a good thing because he's dealing drugs by accident and he's not even making tons of money off it if you're gonna be a drug dealer you've got to have at least one gold rolls royce i mean like a drug kingpin otherwise there's no point being a drug kingpin you're just risking it all for nothing you don't do it for free you do it for gold rolls royce and not that wrapped shit where it's like wrapped in gold you know actual gold very heavy when opening the wrapper it was obvious at first glance that these were no ordinary chocolate bars therefore no one inadvertently ingested any of it but when the police went to collect the eighth limited edition snickers the existence of a pattern could not be dismissed the big question remains what could have been the motive as previously indicated free sample sales tactics don't work on miners also if it's like compressed weed or like i mean it's got to be like um not weed but the other one resin what's it called where you uh where it's like the tarry stuff that you can also smoke oh god what's that called i can't believe i can't remember this um i don't really like it as much it doesn't matter but you know what i'm talking about that like resiny pot and it's got to be that rather than actual spinach because then it would be like super lightweight or maybe it's like compressed down really hard because this sounds like a drug smuggling operation rather than like a drug dealing operation seriously though i can prove this mathematically in the u.s the median allowance for children under the age of 16 is just shy of eight dollars per week so three weeks worth of rigorous saving would merely get you a single gram roughly assuming an optimistic customer return rate of 35 percent and 300 children living within your catchment area your profit margin would be 242 dollars a month or one dollar 48 per working hour now subtract the expenses for free giveaways which do not result in regular customers and you're performing at a loss yeah no one no one thinks this according but it's, it's interesting maths to see but we know it doesn't work out according to the full five-year business plan <laughs> now we're riding this joke hard aren't we i developed while researching this a slick advertising campaign could probably consolidate a or toddler drug empire by the fifth year though you'll find time it's business card no you won't <laughs> anyway if you can rule out luring new customers what was this all about then perhaps there was someone behind to do simply loathe teenagers or someone who liked teenagers a lot depending on your perspective yeah no one's like oh no look at all this free weed i got because if you're a teenager and you don't smoke weed you definitely know someone who does you'd be like hey mate 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 do you want this they'll be like bro do i want this ever yet for an absurd joke the pot was far too costly as the processing indicated an industrial scale it certainly hadn't been a crazy prankster growing a couple of plants in their basement for shits and giggles so maybe they were dealing with some sort of statement or was it to create clout for a new drug overlord in town perhaps no it was a smuggling mistake is it is just this blindingly obvious to me am i is am i being led down this path and then at the end it's gonna be like yeah and it was actually not what you expected simon because right now it just seems pretty obvious that it's a smuggling operation gone wrong right it must be 90 percent of you listening must be thinking the exact same thing 
A small police task force immediately set about putting the puzzle pieces together. Some of the children could roughly reconstruct which route they'd taken on Halloween. After hours of sifting through CCTV footage and reviewing witness testimonies from both trick-or-treaters and the accompanying parents, the leads unambiguously converged on Malcolm W., the new criminal mastermind of Hercules, California. Up to that point, Malcolm had been a respectable and upstanding citizen in the eyes of the authorities. He had been a long-term resident of the city, worked a dull, white-collar job, and had a completely clean criminal record. There wasn't even a parking ticket to his name. <laughs> so I don't think when people say this, it's like there wasn't even a parking ticket to his name. That's not a criminal record, right? You don't search a criminal record, and it's like parking tickets. Just speeding tickets? Because I, I got a lot. So have I told this story before? I think I recently told this. Maybe it was on another show. But since having kids, I've suddenly like I don't think I ever got. I, no, I didn't. Before having kids, didn't get a single speeding ticket my entire life. Since having kids and driving around with kids on the car, I've had like six. <laughs> it's crazy. Like every few months, I'll get another speeding ticket. I'll be like, oh my god, Simon, get your shit together. But I blame it on distracted driving, obviously. The officers were. Oh, I also have lots of parking tickets because I'm an idiot. I just like drive somewhere, I forget to buy the tickets. Or, oh my god, I got like six in like a couple of months. And I'm like, what am I doing? Just all just from parking around the city. I'm like, I'm paying on the app for parking. What am I doing wrong? And then I realized that I was buying my father in law parking uh, because he came, you know, to, to visit us. And I was like, okay, just park out here and I'll you know because he doesn't have the app on his phone or whatever i was like i'll just sort you out the parking for like a couple of hours and i left his bloody license plate in the app so i was buying him parking like six times i kept getting fines and then i eventually realized oh and our license plates are not they're, they're not the same obviously but they're not super dissimilar and so i'm like oh oh no but i'm glad i figured that out fascinating tangent simon how about we get back to the people poisoning children oh when the narcotic squad took him to the police precinct and confirmed and confronted him with the accusations he refused to testify and clammed up completely in most cases this is the proper course of action i was just going to say that is great advice if you're not drug dealing and the police arrest you for drug dealing and take you down to the station don't just lawyer just get a lawyer just be like not me need a lawyer please <laughs> just, just do it no harm in asking when faced with criminal charges, you ask for a lawyer and keep your mouth shut until you have consulted with one, whether you are innocent or not. False convictions are a thing, and you really don't want to get caught up in one of those. In this case, however, the cryptic silence reinforced the notion of Malcolm to leading a double life. That's fine. The police, that's fine. That's fine. Still get a lawyer. Don't be worried about the, oh, that's suspicious. The police will try and capitalize on that. Get a lawyer. Post office clerk by day, underworld boss by night. Especially Halloween night. Since Malcolm refused to talk, investigators scoured his life looking for any clues. How, how long's this lawyer taking? Go, go, go! His apartment had been void of any drugs, though they did discover very compromising wrappers of a bulk Snickers pack in his trash can. How is the how are the police not thinking this is clearly a mess up? And old Malcolm bought a big box of Snickers from Costco. He gave them away to kids, and then he ate the rest of them and threw the and threw the wrappers away, like a normal human being. Poor Malcolm. 
Then again, his colleagues at the post office painted an exceptional favorable image of Mal Malcolm's personality. He was polite, easygoing, and only ever had good things in mind. For instance, he had been in charge of the dead letter section. Mail and parcels that could not be delivered for any reason usually ended up in his hands, and if nobody claimed ownership within a month, their contents would either be destroyed or donated to charity. Malcolm loved to distribute such involuntary donations. His co-workers accordingly had a plethora of anecdotes to offer. Just a couple of weeks earlier, a misaddressed pack with no visible return address had arrived. Since no owner could be identified, Malcolm had gladly taken it upon himself to do something good with it, which was an easy task in this case. The box contained a batch of Snickers, so he decided to distribute the individual bars at the upcoming Halloween festival. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I made a stupid small brain error. That Snickers bar pack with the empty wrappers in the bin. It's like, what, so he ate all of the weed that was in there? That's a bit weird. Or maybe he just likes Snickers anyway. Maybe he's just eating regular Snickers. Or maybe half the box was... Oh, I think maybe some of them were regular, like the ones around the outside, and then the ones inside were weed, and by some chance he just handed out the weed ones and was eating the Snickers ones himself. I think I speak for the entire Hercules Police Department when I say whoopsie diddly do. No good deed ever goes unpunished, even though Malcolm had, of course, immediately been released or with all charges dropped. The unfolding of this false accusation had likely been quite a frightful experience for him. Yeah, no shit. At least he now has one heck of a story to tell. I have precautionarily changed Malcolm's real name, given the relative proximity of these events, though I imagine with a tale like this, he's the gravitational center of any party up to this day. That's good of you. Yeah, I didn't think about that. We didn't give his last name, did we? So that was just Malcolm from Hercules. But I think people are like particularly tying that together. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yet, what is the greater takeaway for our analysis? While the previous story of Kevin Tostin represents the phenomenon of premature news coverage, Malcolm stands for the accidental distribution of contaminated Halloween sweets. The exact course of his story had certainly been a one-off, but generally speaking, tainted candy regularly gets into circulation during Halloween by pure chance, mostly due to production slip-ups. In one documented case, bad corn had been used to sweeten a batch of trashy bonbons. Some children suffered stomach issues as a result. Similar consequences arose from another incident in which high-level copper contamination found its way into glucose syrup. Faulty pans at the factory were to blame, as the U.S. Bureau of Chemistry would later discover. The U.S. has a Bureau of Chemistry? That's awesome. <laughs> they investigate this sort of shit? I guess so. That makes sense. But accidental poisoning doesn't have to come from one-time incidents. Back in the day, a variety of hazardous ingredients were used on a regular basis as their harmful properties were yet to be discovered. This caused a repeating pattern of children falling in ill after consuming sweets, which did not go unnoticed. For example, coal tar was once the go-to yellow food dye, even though it contained poisonous aniline. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like these things, and I hate this, because people are like... Oh, yeah, well, they used to put aniline. That used to be, like, how we'd color things. And people are like, so, I don't know, maybe aspartame in Coca-Cola, Diet Coke does cause cancer. And it's like, no, we've looked into it and we know it's not true. But people always call us like, well, we thought this was safe. And it's like, yeah, because we didn't do science properly back in the day. And guess what we've got good at? Science. We know. We know. 
we know. This sparked numerous local poison killer myths for the lack of a scientific explanation. Coltar is still in use today, but with strict dosage limits. In more recent times, we've also seen numerous reports of glass or metal shards slipping into food due to mechanical wear in fully automated production lines. And shortly after this year's Halloween, a major candy brand recalled a huge batch of their mainline product due to a dangerous mix-up of ingredients. The raw material had some egg mixed in, even though the wrapper declared it to be egg-free. This could have turned out nastily for the 2% of allergy sufferers, though according to the FDA, those concerns did fortunately not materialize after all. To my mind, Malcolm's premium Snickers also belong on this list as they fell into the hands of children through a chain of foolish yet honest mistakes. Wait, it's like wheat, isn't it? Like, someone at some point is going to be a criminal. When was this happening? I guess it could be recent because didn't Cal- this was in California, right? They legalized weed so maybe that's what's going on let's see in other words there is a certain baseline risk of something being very wrong with any given bag of candy merely from bad luck and without any malicious intentions involved obviously not every item on this list had originally been misreported as an alleged poison snack nonetheless their totality condenses into an intimidating overall impression as these missteps have a tendency to converge on halloween for a very specific reason according to the market research institute nielsen u.s candy sales on the 31st of october doubled the annual average and a whole quarter of all sweets sold in the course of any given year is purchased expressly for consumption or distribution on halloween a quarter that's mental that's wow i i'm blown away by the fact that that's 25 uh, of all candy in the year is halloween i would never have thought that i thought it would be like two percent these steep numbers drastically boost the statistical likelihood of a production scandal coming to light during the spooky season. With more sweets being passed around, there is more opportunity for them to be faulty. It's like rolling a billion-sided dice with one indicating a production issue. The base probability never really changes, but people roll these dice way more around Halloween. When ignoring such statistical factors, one might notice the peak of incidents during late autumn and attribute this to any case, any cause in line with your preferred conspiracy. Abstract numbers and correlations are often a little challenging to grasp, which sets the stage for more manifest yet entirely erroneous conclusions. Production slip-ups will usually get detected with several days of delays, leaving at least some windows of opportunity for people to speculate wildly. Once that Pandora's box has been opened, the blaring mumbo-jumbo will easily outspeed any factually correct follow-up statements. Yeah, because it's on page like 70 at the bottom. Stupid. And so, we have unearthed yet another hidden mechanism, fueling the candy scare narrative for no good reason, wrongly assuming a greater meaning to arbitrary and randomly distributed accidents. I'm like, I'm not ready to leave behind the Snickers thing. Like, Dennis is all like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate accidents. And it's like, bro, someone, like, and I said, oh, maybe it's because it's legal. I'm like, well, in that case, they're not trying to smuggle it, are they? They're not hiding inside Snickers bars, which kids might access, and they're not going to eat it, so it's not really a big deal. But it does, I don't think it's like, just accidental someone at some point was like let's hide some weed and some snickers bars you're probably wondering by now just how relevant and impactful could this factor be is there really a significant number of people seriously inferring anything sinister and mysterious from a bunch of co-occurring recall campaigns apart from a certain degree of industrial negligence yeah but it's also industrial negligence it's sure it's industrial negligence whatever but it's like there's industrial negligence in may it's just or june it's just more likely to be discovered in october as we just discussed 
Taken on its own, I'd entirely agree it's a bit of a stretch. But in the long run, such incidents might infuse Halloween candy with a negative aura, which potentially creates a disquieting sentiment towards them, albeit in a very subtle way. Yet subtle fears are the fuel of most bullshit stories, aren't they? If you're prone to conspiracy theories, this will absolutely help you get there. But we have to put it on hold for just a moment. Let's let's first gather all the explanatory patterns together before attempting to quantify their efficacy. There will be a whole dedicated chapter to this, and we still have one major story ahead of us. If Kevin Toston's tragic death is close to your limit, the following chapter will go beyond it. This is not one of those reverse ecology disclaimers designed to garner attention. Another emotionally draining death awaits. So in all seriousness, please do be aware. The Pixie Sticks Killer. A case study in evil. I feel like I've heard of this. I don't think I've made a video about this on Casual Criminalist, but someone could well be pointing out in the comments that, Simon, you made a 90-minute video about this three months ago, and you have no memory of it. <laughs> Embarrassing, isn't it? In the 1970s, few cities were able to keep pace with Houston, Texas. An unprecedented economic boom had transformed the region into a vibrant metropolis whose ever-changing skyline inched a little closer to the sun with each passing day. The city had quickly established itself as the heart of many modern industries, hosting NASA's jo NASA Johnson Space Center. I didn't know that. Oh, no, of course. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. I always, You always think it's Florida, right? Because that's where the rockets take off from. But the Space Center is in Houston, which is weird, but I guess it makes sense there's got to be a reason for it. i guess it doesn't matter like because they're they're in space once the takeoff has happened but it's kind of weird that they're taking off from like cape canaveral which is in florida right i've been to that space center i'm pretty sure it's in florida right it is it is and they're and the, the control center or whatever's over in houston it's weird. Global investment banks and a trailblazing sector of biomedical research. Unfortunately, though, this burgeoning prosperity did not trickle down equally to each of the residents. What? It didn't? <laughs> that trickle-down thing isn't perfect? No! The explosive growth had driven up the cost of living instead, which opened up a vast chasm in the economic strata and strained the city's infrastructure to the point of a housing crisis. By the time Timothy O'Brien turned eight years old in 1974, Houston had just snatched the title of the world's energy capital from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was probably great news for the 0.01% of people who benefited from it. The O'Briens were not among them, quite the opposite. For them, the hardships at the other end of the spectrum had become very tangible, everyday reality. Yet it was not all doom and gloom. Both Ronald and Daneen O'Brien were determined to keep their financial plight from rubbing off on their children, Timothy and little Elizabeth. When October rolled around, Halloween presented the perfect opportunity for a fun and affordable family outing. A week prior to the festivities, friends from nearby Pasadena had invited the O'Briens to join their trick-or-treating rounds, to which they gladly agreed. Throwing a party or decorating their home themselves would have been beyond their budget ceiling, but some cutbacks here and there at least allowed for costumes. Timothy decided to go as a human-monkey hybrid, as his favorite movie was the 1968 sci-fi classic Planet of the Apes. Wait, when was this taking place? 1974, that makes sense. For a kid to be like, what's your favorite movie? 1968's Planet of the Apes? That'd be a bit weird. He had barely been able to contain his excitement as the day slowly approached, and his sister, Elizabeth, the soon-to-be witch, had, to be, had been equally as thrilled. When the big evening finally came, the family climbed into their car, the kids grinning with excitement. They were eager to reunite with their friends and get up to mischief with them, and the adults were happy to take a night off from worrying about the future. After joining forces with their acquaintances, the group of cheerful children roamed the Pasadena neighborhood, knocking on doors and yelling trick-or-treat in unison with their parents trailing behind at some distance. Timothy's bag filled up the fastest because he was a real go-getter. He had been raking in 
him the candy as if it spent his entire life training for this very day. When the doors in front of him swung open, it'd strike a pose and imitate the movie character his costume portrayed. Residents rewarded his little performance with well-deserved bonus sweets. His yield eventually grew so enormous that he was forced to unload his bag at his father's, who would then redistribute the excess treats to less successful gatherers. Oh, that's nice. This happened multiple times throughout Timothy's foray. They hadn't had this much fun in a long time. When they returned to their house later that night, a rare sense of ease lay in the air. Their party continued a little longer in their living room, and to round off this exceptionally enjoyable day, Ronald allowed his children to each have one final piece of candy before bedtime. Timothy went for a strawberry-flavored pixie stick, but after he spilt the first split a smidge of fizzy powder into his mouth, he complained about his choice, asking his dad if he could swap it for a lollipop. Ronald declined the request and pointed to the clock, arguing that a lollipop would take him forever to finish. Timothy accepted his father's decision, yet he put aside the half-eaten pixie stick anyway. He knew about pixie sticks. The twist on this brand was the overly sour taste, but with this specific piece, an excessive bitterness had also made him throw up. Instead, whoa, okay, that's heavy. Bitterness is associated with cyanide, right? And poisons. From my experience, most children tend to be somewhat fickle about their food preferences. <laughs> yes, from my experience as well. My first child, my my son, the one-year-old, he will eat anything. He'll just destroy whatever. He eats more than the three-year-old. The three-year-old is like. I want... What did she want the other day? She wanted like... I want a croissant. And so I made her a croissant. She said, I didn't want croissant. I wanted porridge. And I went, you wanted bloody croissant. Eat the bloody croissant. <laughs> Loving certain ingredients today only to randomly start hating them tomorrow is mostly normal child behavior. Oh, dude. Like the cheese. My kid loved cheese. So it'd always be like, let's make cheese. Like a little omelette. Put some cheese on there. Toasted cheese sandwich. Spaghetti. Put some cheese on there. Anything but cheese. And then one day it's like, I'm putting the cheese on there. She's like, I don't like cheese. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> don't like cheese? Dad, I don't like cheese. Take the cheese off. Dad, oh, he's melted into the bloody thing. This might explain why Ronald didn't pay much attention to Timothy's grumblings at first. He brought his son a glass of Kool-Aid to wash down the funny aftertaste and then told him to prepare for sleep. Yet before Timothy could even finish his beverage, something more substantial made itself felt in his demeanor. With each sip, his eyes turned glassier, his stance a little shakier, and his face became a blank porcelain mask. Without saying another word, he suddenly dashed into the bathroom, clutching his stomach in, ag in agony. Ronald and Denine, now somewhat concerned, followed close behind and found their son hunched over the toilet, vomiting uncontrollably. Within seconds, Timothy started shaking and cramping, and by the time his legs gave way, he was frothing at the mouth. Before anyone could really react to it, the eight-year-old boy went entirely unresponsive and limp, collapsing in his father's arms. They yelled and screamed at Timothy. They desperately shook him by the shoulders, but they wouldn't get any reaction out of his lifeless limbs. When Ronald checked for vital signs and couldn't find any, the yelling stopped. For either a second or an eternity, they stared at their son's corpse, frozen in a mixture of shock disbelief and horror. It was like looking at a wax replica of their child. They were jolted out of their stupor by the thought of their daughter. Dainine rushed back upstairs to check on Elizabeth, though she fortunately had selected an entirely different type of candy and was therefore just fine. To save her from her trauma, Dainine shut the door and remained on the second floor for a while, distracting Elizabeth while barely holding back the tears. At the same time, Ronald called the emergency services and informed the dispatcher of Timothy's sudden death. Blaring sirens and flashing lights pierced the night as the ambulance arrived at the scene within minutes. An army of paramedics jumped out and quickly sprang into action, checking Timothy's pupils, administering IVs, and briskly yelling commands at each other. Ronald and Deneen watched in horror. It took them a second until the obvious dawned on them. The first responders wouldn't have done anything like that on a dead body. Two of the paramedics wheeled Timothy's gurney into an ambulance and closed the door with a dull thud. A wave of emotions washed over the parents. They didn't know what to feel. First, fear 
anger, hope, grief. Was there justification for a faint glimmer of hope? Well, yeah, definitely. It seems like he still might be alive. It's obviously a massive medical emergency, but yeah, I'd be like... <laughs> On the outside, they kept their composure, but inside, they were falling apart. As the ambulance pulled away from the scene, another set of vehicles arrived, a squad of police cars and a forensic van. The officers quickly cordoned off the area, making sure to keep curious neighbors at bay. Inside the house, the detectives began their investigation, taking pictures and collecting evidence. One of the detectives approached Ronald and Deneen, introducing himself as the head of the investigation. He gently informed them that Timothy had indeed been alive, but his survival was hanging by a thread. He then insisted on interviewing them right away, as the situation was potentially very dangerous for other children in the area. The couple, overwhelmed with this emotional roller coaster, nodded and followed the officer into the kitchen as they understood the stakes and didn't want to waste any time. They provided information as much as they could, even though their minds were foggy with worry and fear and their nerves were frayed beyond breaking points. Wow, like, I can know, I can I don't want, what even want to imagine being in this situation, but to be able to like do that and to go to the kitchen and tell these officers what they need when your kid is like hanging by a thread in hospital, to get your shit together enough to be like to know that understand the danger, it's like good for you. This is really like good for you they began recounting the events in chronological order starting with their drive to pasadena but only a few sentences into their testimony their words were cut short by an interruption from another officer he whispered something to his colleague with a grim expression oh my god the look on his face told the o'briens everything they needed to know ronald and Deneen would never see their son again timothy brown and passed away en route to the hospital Upon learning this, police officials knew that they had to act even quicker and as vigorously as possible. There was not a single second to squander, as more tainted pixie sticks were likely in circulation. Since the O'Briens had been put in the company of other families, police patrols immediately sought out their address to retrieve the potentially hazardous candy from them. Thankfully, none of the children had yet tasted the deadly treats, but one family was plunged into panic when they could not find the pixie sticks in their son's bag of goodies, though they did recall receiving one. When they went to check on their son, they found him fast asleep in bed with the unopened candy clutched in his fist. He had not been able to open the clip ceiling of the wrapper. In parallel with this, investigators had also sent off Timothy's Pixie 6 to the lab for an examination. It tested positive for cyanide, a mitochondrial toxin that is among the most lethal substances known to humanity. In fact, the lab found enough cyanide in it to kill several grown adults. If Timothy had swallowed the entire amount in a single gulp, it had been dead before he hit the floor. On the upside though this compound can be detected rather easily which is why they were able to run follow-up tests on other samples right away when they checked the pixie stick specimen collected from the other pasadena families the lab assistants couldn't believe their eyes every single one tested positive had officials been just a tiny bit slower to react they there could have been four more children's bodies in the morgue by now but this also vividly highlighted the immense hazard to other children of which they were unaware in the wake of this unprecedented mass poisoning event, police officers were ordered to contact all the local hospitals, asking them to be on the lookout for children with severe abdominal pain, vomiting, and nausea. They also issued a citywide warning, urging parents to carefully inspect all Halloween candy, especially pixie sticks. If that was the situation, I'd be like, I'm really sorry, but we're throwing everything away. Everything is going away. This is not an accident. This is, this is not one of those ones where it's like, this happened by accident? How? It's cyanide. 
that doesn't accidentally form in pixie sticks. No one's smuggling cyanide. Can't think of a rational explanation. Following the press release, an unimaginable media circus descended on Pasadena, conjuring a wave of paranoia among parents. Mums and dads rushed to the hospitals with their children and so convinced they were infected with deadly toxins too. You see, virtually every single child in town had enjoyed Halloween candy during the previous days, so any time one of them fell ill in any conventional way, it brought about rush conclusions. I'm not judging when it comes to the life of your children, better safe than sorry is not the worst principle to live by. Yeah, no, I'd be like, I know I would be like, well, maybe you go to the hospital. My wife would be already at the hospital. Like, anytime the kids go, I'm, I'm always like, let's try and be a bit rational, let's think this through. But I guess that's because I'm, and like, not to gender stereotype, I suppose, but I think I'd be like the more like, mm, you know, it's probably just a cold. But in this situation, they'd be like, there's so much poison about the cyanide. A kid died. Better go to the hospital, just in case. All those panic-stricken parents could eventually be relieved, though. None of the subsequent medical examinations revealed any evidence of poisoning. Nevertheless, the police had to keep up the pressure. With no suspects in sight and no real leads whatsoever, the investigators had to think outside the box. The O'Briens were obviously key witnesses. They must have had a direct encounter with the poison killer at some point during their prowl. To Deneen, the evening had already turned into a blurry conglomeration of nameless streets, nondescript houses, and featureless faces. Nothing of relevance could be derived from her testimony. Ronald had felt unable to add any substantial information to. At most, the vague image of a disembodied hand had come to mind. A male hand giving the candy to Timothy through the crack of a door without ever stepping into the light. Even though details about the house eluded him, this vague image was among the few clues that investigators had to go on. In the absence of any better ideas, they decided to take Ronald back to the streets of Pasadena, hoping that a second look at the neighborhood would jog his memory. I'd say that's a bloody reasonable idea anyway. Like, it doesn't seem like last ditch would be like, let's go see if you remember anything, let's go for a walk. Let's go. The mission seemed fruitless at first, as the streets all looked alike, and the houses were indistinguishable from one another. Yeah, of course it would at first, but then hopefully you'll have that moment where it was like, this place this place because that's how memory works you get these little triggers and you're like oh my god yeah no this was the how are we going ronald would guide the detectives in circles roving the same street roads up and down every now and then it stopped to have a closer look at the building only to realize that it already inspected the same house for the umpteenth time then he would shake his head in disappointment and continue to amble without any particular direction the increasingly annoyed officials had been on the verge of giving up on this Hail Mary nonsense when Ronald suddenly saw something that made him stop in his tracks. Exactly, that's that's what we're waiting for. There, he exclaimed with a sudden rush of enthusiasm. This is the one. This is where Timothy got the pixie sticks. There was apparently no doubt in Ronald's mind as he pointed to the white bungalow with a jubilant gesture. And indeed, this moment turned out to be the big break that they'd been hoping for albeit not in the way that you'd quite imagine. When they brought in the owner of the house for questioning, investigators had mentally prepared to meet the worst kind of human garbage possible. Yet when their new prime suspect was led into the interrogation room and sat across from a res- they sat across from a respectable middle-aged man with an affable manner and a well-groomed appearance. <laughs> I don't think this guy's probably guilty of anything, because statistically it's just probably not the case. But, like, well-groomed, well-mannered, middle-aged dude? Are you describing a serial killer, my guys? <laughs> I mean, you're describing, like, 90% of people, but it's like, it's never the guy who's got, like, uh, it's, uh, it's also often the, the shifty-looking guy. But... Like Ted Bundy, like all these famous ones, you're like, seems seems like a really nice guy. Seems he was so charming. <laughs> I had no idea he cut faces off. 
C. Melvin did not strike anyone as dangerous, twisted, or psychologically conspicuous. The banality of evil can be deceiving, of course, but when Mr. Melvin presented big investigators with a rock-solid and irrefutable alibi, they were absolutely stumped. As an air traffic controller, Mr. Melvin was used to working late hours. On Halloween night, his shift had kept him in the airport until 11 p.m., as confirmed by several of his colleagues in unlimited amounts of surveillance footage. <laughs> I could think of there's probably rarely a better alibi than that. It's like, where were you? I was at my job at a highly secure facility with plenty of monitoring and records. It's air traffic control. Like, the records must be, like, tight. <laughs> But by that time, Timothy had already passed. It was therefore impossible for Mr. Melvin to have committed the crime. After the investigators verified his alibi, they apologized to Mr. Melvin for the inconvenience and turned their eyes to another suspect. When getting bogged down in an investigation, it's sometimes a good idea to revisit every lead you've gathered so far. Thus, the police went back to the drawing board and reconsidered the big picture, asking themselves a very basic yet important question. What about the known individuals? Is there anyone we know for sure to have handled pixie sticks? Oh, I don't want to say it, but is this where this is going? I'm not going to say it. You probably also had the same thought I did right now, but I don't want to jump to any wild-ass conclusions. Let's pretend Simon didn't spoil the solution to this case right after reading the headline, so we can get wise to the true culprit together. Okay, I didn't spoil it. Let's go. If you had been the chief investigator, you probably would have scrutinized the O'Briens themselves right away. Okay, there we go. That's exactly what I was thinking. Just, you know, check the parents. You might have spotted the resemblance to the Kevin Toston case, and surprise, surprise, your gut instincts would have been spot on. For the real investigators, it first needed some desperation to even consider this direction. But when they finally did look into the O'Brien family, the puzzle pieces fell into place very quickly. Yeah, but there was also... Whoa, whoa, whoa! They would have also... Didn't they find cyanide in other pixie sticks? So they would have had to have distributed that to other kids. Like, I can't understand it, but I can understand why the police would look into parents when a kid dies. Like, that's reasonable. Or child protective services or whatever, social services. You know, they come in, they're like, oh, you know, just going to make sure everything's okay. Good job. Fine. But then to distribute the pixie sticks with the poison to hide the fact that you're murdering the child to put other children in risk and almost certainly kill them. If that's what's gone on here, that is beyond insane. An audit of the family's finances revealed a catastrophic predicament exceeding the initial assumptions by orders of magnitude. Ronald practiced as an optician, which was certainly not a low-paying profession by any means. Yet with a sufficiently extravagant spending habit, he had successfully managed to steer his family down, a, down the path of impoverishment. Their home was on the brink of foreclosure, their bank accounts were maxed out, and overdue notices flooded in like Hogwarts invitation letters. None of these looming prospects had stopped Ronald from spending every penny on pointless shopping sprees and ephemeral luxuries. He had been living vastly beyond his means for years. And of this unearned exhilaration, he had shared little with his family. In a way, he was leading a double life, one of which was to financially emaciate his family, and the other was to indulge in every vice without restraint. In the morning, he would announce to his wife that orange juice for breakfast was no longer within budget, only to turn around and drown in cocaine and hookers by the same evening. Oh my lord. That is, you've got an addiction there, like, to, like, there's something wrong with you where you're, where you're doing that, right? That's like, you, you, 
that's beyond just financial irrespons- irresponsibility. That's like there's something up. You need to you need some treatment or some therapy or something. But one long-term investment he did commit to. In January of the year Timothy would die, Ronald took out ten thousand dollars in life insurance on both of his children. In September of the same year, he tripled the coverage of these policies, and only a few days before Halloween, he increased the coverage even further. What? This is like. This is I, I've mentioned like this def- episode definitely blurs some of the lines between this show and Casual Criminalist. But Casual Criminalist, we have like these rules for criminals, and one of the rules is like don't take out a life insurance policy on your victim. It's insane. They ten thousand is that ten thousand is that ten thousand dollars is the amount he gets paid out, right? That doesn't see oh it's the nineteen seventies. When was it back in the day? Let's say it's a hundred grand. For the life of your child, you fucking stupid sick. The insurance company had voiced their objections and advised Ronald to rather pay off his debt instead, but he was having none of that and went through with it anyway. Just imagine taking out a policy so insanely stupid that even your insurance agency gets ethical qualms. If your insurance agency is saying that, just know that getting the payout is going to be really, really difficult because they're already suspicious before the suspicious event that they suspect is coming has come. Like, don't <laughs> wait. This is insane. It was almost as if Ronald was halfway expecting his kids to suddenly die. His insurance agent had his suspicions, but ultimately decided against reporting this to the police on the grounds of being a fucking idiot. I hope these days when the stuff like, if someone's tripled their life insurance policy on a child and keeps doing that, and then what, either way, there should be some sort of little computer trigger being like, just have a look at that guy, see what's up. Just, you know, insurance companies should have, I've said this for hospitals before, like hospitals should have just, you know, a retired detective on the staff. Police retire, young, lucrative, post-retirement career, being the hospital detective. You just wander around, you talk to patients, all informally, you talk to doctors, blah, 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 and you just see if your little, like kind of HR, except for crimes. You know, you just see if your little policeman's brain starts tingling. They should, insurance companies should, maybe insurance companies do, because they're very financially motivated. I feel like they should have retired. Let me know in the comments, someone who works for an insurance company. Do like retired detectives and stuff come work for insurance companies to like sniff out fraud and potential much more major crimes like this? I feel like they should be. Like a lucrative little retirement gig. Investigators also learned about Ronald's difficult and often impulsive temperament. Even though he had been gainfully employed for most of his adult life, he had been fired from more than 20 jobs over the years. At the time of this story, he was facing termination from his latest job at Texas State Optics as well on suspicion of generously tipping himself with company money. That's one way to put it. What's another way? I don't know. Fraud. <laughs> Among his regular customers had been a chemist who provided the police with an additional chilling clue. According to him, Ronald had once inquired about cyanide and other deadly poisons and where they could be purchased. The chemist, unaware of Ronald's true intentions, had naively recommended a local reseller to him. <laughs> If someone's asking you where do you, hey, uh, just just curious, just I mean this before the internet, obviously, just curious, uh, you know, if I was if I was interested in buying cyanide, just uh, you know, just <laughs> no reason, where would I get that? <laughs> Be like, don't tell them, don't tell your friends where to buy cyanide, even if you know. If you're a chemist, just think, how long has this guy been my friend? Is he really my friend? Does he want something from me? Does he want to know where to buy cyanide? You don't have to report him to the police. Just don't tell him where to buy the cyanide. 
After all, people usually only have noble endeavors in mind when shopping for lethal toxins. For cyanide in particular, there are hundreds of quite innocuous household applications such as, oh no, actually it's just good for murder. The chemical company was able to confirm that Ronald had made an appearance on their premises. A sales representative recalled telling him that they only sold their products in industrial quantities and that he would need a government-issued certificate for owning cyanide anyway. They did ask him about his intentions, to which Ronald had responded with a makeshift excuse about do-it-yourself pesticides before hastily buggering off. The company decided against reporting this foreboding encounter to the police on the grounds of being fucking idiots. This evidence motivated and justified a raid on the O'Brien's home, during which a hidden pocket knife was discovered and confiscated. The lab identified microscopic traces of cyanide residue on its blade, as well as Ronald's fingerprints on the handle. Ronald's going to prison! <laughs> no more questions, Your Honor. Up to this point, you might have been led to believe that the entire fuss about Halloween sadism is nothing but a baseless hoax, without even a single documented case of anything like this ever happening. While this conclusion isn't exactly wrong, it isn't completely correct either. Also, wait, he didn't he poison the other kids? He didn't he send out the pixie sticks to other places to, like, I assume, deflect danger, uh, deflect suspicion from himself? Throughout the years, there have been isolated cases of people knowingly lacing Halloween candy with the intent of causing harm, and this is one of them. After a rather short show trial, Ronald O'Brien was convicted of murdering his son, and yes, Simon, he did receive the death penalty. <laughs> I'm not gonna say good, but, uh, I mean, fuck that guy, right? Show. Also, he didn't have a show trial, did he, Dennis? It's kind of like this is. It's. It's not like a kangaroo court. It's still America. I'm sure he had a lawyer and a defense and all of this stuff. I don't know what he pled, but they'll be like, he probably pled not guilty, didn't he? Because if he pled guilty, it would probably be for a bargain that he didn't get the death penalty. So, dude, that, that case was locked down, man. You should have. You should have pled guilty, right? <laughs> The defense team had tried to pin the blame on a fabled maniac, citing myths and playing on emotions, but the jury could not be manipulated. They saw right through the tactic as the prosecution expertly dismantled any fear-mongering of conspiracy babble with facts. The defense then argued that other children than Timothy had also received poison pixie sticks, which indicated that Timothy couldn't have been targeted as a victim. Um, no, you are digging your own grave there. You That's then you distributed pixie sticks, and you could reasonably have foreseen that they could have killed other children. And I imagine that's, that might be what pushed things over the line to the death penalty for you. In consequence, the alleged motive of an insurance fraud scheme would be absurd, but that strategy turned out to be a poor play as well, since the obvious explanation was, well, obvious indeed, as already pointed out by your local big brain Simon. Ronald himself had given the poison sweets to those Pasadena children in order to divert suspicion. He had easy access to the children's treat bags throughout the evening, and if you paid attention, you'll remember that Ronald had passed Timothy's excess candy to other children on multiple occasions. It would have been simple for him to mix in the poison pixie sticks with a little sleight of hand. It took the jury a mere 46 minutes to reach a guilty verdict on him, savage, and just over another hour to sign his death sentence. An hour, the length of a, the length of a relatively short movie, and they've decided that he's guilty and that he's going to get a needle in his arm. Shit. Judge Michael McSpadden was happy with this outcome. <laughs> he set 31st of October 1982 as the date for his execution, the 8th anniversary of the crime. Bro, that's a bit much though, isn't it? And he reportedly offered O'Brien to personally drive him to the execution site. Fucking hell. Uh, Your Honor, I request a change of venue. <laughs> The sentence was set to be carried out by lethal injection. O'Brien's attorneys protested this method, arguing that killing a person with poison would be disproportionately cruel. 
Not even fucking kidding. The judge rejected this appeal and, in legal terms, told the attorney to fuck off. After some delay due to technicalities, Ronald Clark O'Brien was finally executed on March 31, 1984. His last words were an averment, averment. Another big brain word that I don't know. I'm learning new words today. People at home that you're either like grateful that I look these up or you think I've got a tiny brain, and uh, both are true. An affirmation or allegation. Okay. His last words were an affirmation of his innocence. A vermin. Outside the prison, a crowd of roughly 300 onlookers had gathered, some protesting the death penalty and others celebrating it. It's funny because I don't know which crowd I'd be in. It's like, no, I don't know, I don't know. I, I like Someone like this, who killed his own kid and then basically only through chance did other kids not die. I, I still wouldn't... I, I don't think he doesn't deserve to die but i also wouldn't go there to celebrate the fact i definitely also wouldn't go there to protest the fact either <laughs> it's like one of those things where you're like, i got the death penalty oh no that was sarcasm by the way as the lethal injection was administered behind the walls, a group of Capital Punishment supporters showered their opposition with Halloween candy while chanting trick or treat in unison. Ah! Fucking savage! Diane was completely cleared of any involvement in the murder plot. She had no knowledge of it until the police discovered the truth. In fact, there was a lot about Ronald's life that she didn't know about, including his spending habits, his embezzlement accusations, and the insurance policies. She was being like, but Ronald, where does all the money go? You're an optician. We know other opticians. They're not as poor as us. They're not, they're just not that poor. And you've always got all these fancy clothes, Ronald. Where's the money going, Ronnie? I'm not going to go through the details given the length of this episode, though from the information I have gathered, I can endorse her innocence with relative certainty. Diane divorced Ronald during his trial, and I can imagine she and her daughter went into hiding afterwards as they pretty much vanished off the records after Ronald's execu execution. Excellent, just go live your lives. Try and move past this horrific thing that happened to you because, yeah, just go get on, try to move. This is so savage. It's just not right. Despite her proven innocence, her reputation was probably beyond repair. I don't know. She was innocent. Her daughter's innocent. Just leave her the fuck alone. The Pixie Sticks killer had committed the ultimate act of treachery. He had not only extinguished the innocent life of his own son, but also tarnished the beloved family forever. In the aftermath, the legend of poison Halloween candy became entrenched in the collective memory forever. At least that's what Gemma Wikipedia says. But is this really true? And if so, is it justified? German Wikipedia, not a random reference. Dennis is German, so that's uh, <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Dennis is German, and he has a better vocabulary than me. And he's a much better writer than me. I have a friend of mine here who's uh, he's from Puerto Rico, and he uses words like, not like writing, in conversation I'll be like... <laughs> like words that i wouldn't use not because he doesn't speak good english because his english is better than mine oh it's, it's so bad it's so bad you see there are several check boxes we can tick poison yes halloween candy yes intentional harm yes but what about the aspect of randomness the well-established myth has never really been about getting murdered by your own parents the scary part not to say the essence of the narrative in question is the element of chance. Regarding such cases, our counter is still at zero. Timothy had fallen victim to targeted poisoning, and I believe this is a very important caveat. Yeah, and immediately I was thinking, yeah, but what about the other children? It's like, well, none of them actually ended up getting poisoned. So, still at zero. So here's a statistically misleading, yet somehow accurate statement. If your parents carefully hand-checked your Halloween candy for signs of tampering, the odds of you dying from consuming it increased ever so slightly. Oh my god, that's statistically true and weird. <laughs> 
Your mum and dad are more likely to slip in a poison treat than the strangers who originally gave it to you. Let that sink in. Um, yeah, I, I, I think like, you know, there's that old CSI thing. It's always the husband. <laughs> it's people who know the victim. Random killing is very rare. On the other hand, one could argue that the Pasadena children must be counted as random victims, even though they dodged the bullet by sheer luck, to which I can only reply, yes, a good point, actually. I still tend not to count these as completely valid example in the context of this episode. Yeah, they didn't die. Uh, the myth uh, we're delving into puts a lot of emphasis on arbitrary killings without any underlying purposes. So I think Ronald's crime falls into another category. He wasn't part of the myth. He was just aware of the myth and used it to conceal his deed. The myth caused the pixie stick murderer not the other way around i don't think that matters like if something happens because there was an urban legend about it it doesn't mean that that thing didn't happen it just you know different things are caused by different things i you know i i i am not sure kind of rank this as one but maybe that's just me Without the ready-made narrative, Ronald would likely have settled on a different MO. Yet I do recognize that this is a matter of speculation. Anyway, there are two more lesser-known incidents which carry an element of intent. In 1959, a dentist with a sick grudge against children hid laxatives in bonbons. His victims were left humiliated, embarrassed, forced to soil themselves in public. I mean, yes, this is a terrible thing to do, but is it killing? No. Though he was convicted of causing a public nuisance and unlawfully administering drugs, he evaded any assault charges, as even a higher dose of the substance would have been dangerous only to the underwear. In 1964, a woman from Long Island took her disdain for teenagers to another level by intentionally distributing hazardous items such as steel wool, dog biscuits, and ant bait to anyone she deemed too old for trick-or-treating. However, she did not try to pass them off as edible candy. Quite the opposite, she made every effort to get a message across by unmistakably marking the items as unfit for consumption. Nevertheless, the woman was found guilty of endangering the lives of children. <laughs> Fuck off. She's just... I, lo- I don't like it. Do I think it's a crime? <laughs> Should it be a crime? No. She's just a mean old woman. And that's really it. Oh, okay, that's it. The debunking of the debunking. You're probably thinking right now, well, thanks for all the anecdotes, but where is the reliable scientific data, you imprecise chatterbox? (laughs) Oh my god, imprecise chatterbox, give me my fucking Twitter bio. This is the Fact Boy Cinematic Universe, not an Alex Jones podcast. Well, let me introduce you to Dr. Joel Best, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of Delaware. He is widely regarded as the leading authority on the myth of poisoned Halloween candy, and although this area is only a tiny and relatively unimportant part of of his extended academic work, it is the only one he ever gets quoted on. Ah, yeah, this often happens. Like, someone will do something that's really big, and even though the rest of their stuff is important and impressive at all of this, it's like people are like well that's the one that convicted by the media so that's what you're known for like who's that guy there was a there was a i can't i'm gonna butcher this half story but i think his name was like professor professor he was a british um advisor to the government about the use of like drug legality and stuff and he was basically like weed should be legal like i'm a professor of drugs or whatever he was a professor he was like a big time academic like super big brain and he said to the government yeah i kind of think drugs should be legal like or weed should be legal or something and then he got fired for this and this is what people remember him for even though he's pro- he's like he was like, a, a, like the main advisor to the government on drugs or something 
and that's what people remember him for which is fine i guess you're an academic you're not like looking for fame or whatever i don't know why am i making a point here not really let's just move on <laughs> it's such a pointless ramble i'm sorry and a half-finished story about some dude throughout his career dr best conducted groundbreaking research on the perception of statistics oh it shaped the way modern scholars think about scientific publishing yet every time his phone rings it's just another goddamn journalist asking him stupid questions about that one bloody paper on halloween candy that he published in 1984 life is unfair sometimes proving the non-existence of something is epistemologically impossible though dr best's survey is our best shot at getting the full picture so here's a rundown of his findings between 1958 and 1983 there were fewer than 90 cases of potential candy tampering leaving aside ronald o'brien and that one dentist none of these cases was linked to malicious intentions upon closer inspection it became clear to dr best that most of these were not the acts of madmen but rather of the children themselves themselves in an attempt to garner attention they had fabricated tales of tampering adding pins and household cleaners to their own candy before presenting it to their unsuspecting parents fucking children what are you up to it's like kids why did you do this i just just wanted attention <laughs> no other reason just i wanted you i just wanted attention it's like even my kids like why did you throw that on the grounds you can't ask them this they're not capable of replying yet like properly but it's like why would you throw it on the ground it's like probably because i was looking at my phone too much and they wanted attention that's 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 it you know <laughs> this is apparently a rather common thing to occur in some of those cases during subsequent interviews the children acknowledged that they had gotten the idea from hearing about the myth on tv or radio but best also found five child deaths that were initially thought by local authorities to be caused by homicide or strangers yet all of them revealed other causes of death later down the line i've mentioned some of those briefly in a previous chapter in 2013 dr best updated his work with new data from the years since 1983 which added several new cases to the database all of them ultimately turned out to be either hoaxes or accidents he did not publish another revision after that but i can still affirm that there haven't been any relevant cases since 2014 either because i actually reached out to him in order to ask some stupid questions about the one bloody paper that he wrote in 2014. <laughs> you teed that up fucking perfectly dennis nice this resulted in a nice little exchange and throughout the following days he provided me with some profound insights which really helped me to put everything in perspective legend what a legend <laughs> seeing as he must have the patience of a fucking saint from like 1989 to now to be like yeah no i'll answer your stupid questions i'll give you some studies <laughs> For the most part, we focused on political identities in the context of this issue, which is a subtopic I later decided not to explore in the final script. Still, his perspective on things uh, was somewhat surprising and therefore very valuable. So thanks again, Joel. You're literally the best. Oh, because his name is Dr. Best. Bomb! <laughs> he's left an editor's note mate i really hope this poor dude never sees this you phoned him up to ask a study that about a study that he did in 1989 and probably has not been left alone about in the decade since and then you make a pun about his name which he's probably heard i'd estimate somewhere about 1.4 million times in his life <laughs> what surprised me most about this opinion was that the myth was not nearly as widespread as people think and this is absolutely true in 2022 for every news article about poisoned halloween candy there were 11.2 articles about baby penguins wow okay but that's also because baby penguins are popular all year round halloween's only a thing once a year when directly seeking out alarmist reports on the halloween candy scare you'll easily find hundreds of results though keep in mind that is cherry-picked data if you just leave the tv running it'll probably take months before the topic is mentioned to you just once 
but baby penguins <laughs> 11.2 times according to dr best next to nobody really gives a crap about this myth in a way it is only kept alive by people debunking it over and over again oh no this episode is filled with little ironies <laughs> Think about it. Have you ever really encountered this topic outside of a debunking video or article? Perhaps we are dealing with one of those delightfully absurd situations where everybody believes they possess some sacred knowledge that nobody else has. Did you know that Napoleon wasn't short at all and, it, and that it just fallen victim to a matter of mistranslated measurements units? Yes, for the love of God, yes, literally everybody knows this. But people will still, I, I know that I feel everyone knows that, but people will still like, I feel like I still hear that sometimes times that he is short and you're like what are you everyone knows he wasn't short there is not a single person in the entire universe unaware of this so-called common misconception when it comes to debunking myths there is a point at which the roles reverse at which the existence of the misconception becomes the misconception the debunking therefore addresses a problem which doesn't really exist of course every conceivable conspiracy has a following but in this case it is probably nowhere near a size worth mentioning in the introduction i stated that this myth is slowly killing trick-or-treating i asked dr best if he'd agree with this prognosis oh which he clearly did not he predicts that participation rates will stabilize back to their usual levels after the pandemic and statistics support his opinion there was a dip in 2020 and 2021 but if you zoom out far enough there hasn't been any substantial decline at all not even in the wake of the ronald o'brien case which had putatively killed halloween so were our efforts in vain have we been hunting down a figment within a figment throughout the chapters we have elicited three reasonable factors that could potentially be conductive to the myth should we just dismiss these as feckless theories without any impact in the real world well honestly yes poisoned halloween candy has never been a phenomenon of any significance there have barely been one or two incidents which don't even fit the narrative that precisely but the myth about it hasn't really been a widespread thing either from the case of kevin toston we theorize that premature press releases might nourish the myth makes sense but if we check dr best's actual numbers we find that on average there are barely two or three newspaper stories of this kind per year most of them published only in smaller local papers can you really expect a huge effect from this in the second story we cover the tale of malcolm w as an example of random accident which could mistakenly be interpreted as evidence for the myth being true we have also shown that production errors are no rarity and occur more frequently on halloween for statistical reasons but honestly accidents are usually reported and perceived as such the quality of people who can't or won't distinguish between attempted murder and industrial slip-ups is probably microscopic too small to ever reach a critical mass and last but not least we talked about actual incidents that did meet the criteria albeit very poorly in the span of roughly 40 years dr best found two of them in retrospect it seems only logical that this did not result in a large anti-halloween movement that uh, would survive the ages this surely is a bit of disappointment to all of you after all our, our rationale seemed so plausible and the stories from which we derived them were so illustrative how can our theories make so much sense yet turn out to be who in the end because statistics like that's that statistics you know there were only two yeah but they're really good stories they're really two good stories yeah but they're just too it feels like a betrayal doesn't it well what can i say those darn facts have once again spoiled our fun unfortunately the plural of anecdote is not data yes that is a 
That is a nice quote. The plural of Atlantic Zodiac is not data. I like that. That's very nice. On a meta level, this insight lay in front of our eyes the whole time. Uncle Henry had tried to blame the negligent killing of his nephew on the myth, but that plan had flopped as the myth wasn't nearly as established as he thought it was. Inspector Slotka therefore saw right through his lies. The same thing had happened to Ronald, who also attempted to pin his crime on a legend. The prosecutor had an easy time exposing this because the jury had never taken the myth seriously. Both Henry and Ronald believed random Halloween poisonings to be a common occurrence known to everyone and they were wrong. But there remains one thing that science did not study, something that transcends any facts that we can grasp, but not our minds. It's the thought of what if. Let's face it, a little bit of unease remains. If you have children, you are filled with concern for their well-being all the time. Will you let your kids go trick-or-treating next year? If you do so, you might think of this episode while watching your kids having their way with their candy, telling yourself that a random dude on the internet assured you it's fine, but what if? Yeah, I don't know. For uh, trick-or-treating is not a thing where I live, so I don't have to worry about it. But I'd just be like, just eat the sealed ones. And I know some psycho can, like, uh, reseal things and stuff, but it's just like that extra barrier. Just, just, like, make sure it's sealed. Yeah? Cool. Cryptic illusions. Oh, I see. <laughs> Again, I'll bring up the other podcast they do called Casual Criminalist. We have the, the first writer you ever wrote for that channel called Everything in the Appendix, Dismembered Appendices. And it just was picked up and used. And uh, Dennis has introduced Cryptic Illusions and he says, Can we use this as the Dismembered Appendices for decoding the unknown? To that I say, Yes, Dennis, you may. And if the other writers choose to pick, pick, choose to pick up on it, then they, they can as well. Everyone is free to do whatever they want. Halloween Carnage. It's a funny quirk of human nature that we tend to constantly worry about the most unlikely scenarios while ignoring the very real dangers all around us. Focusing on things we can easily avoid is a great method of coping with all the things that we can't control. I'd rather feel safe from flash floods than scared of lung cancer. That's why I took out flood insurance a couple of days ago, despite living on top of a fifth floor atop a hill 700 kilometers from the coast. I'm writing these lines with a tobacco pipe in the corner of my mouth and I feel very protected from the ocean. Oh... Yeah, the real things. The real things, right? With that in mind, it shouldn't surprise anyone that children are exposed to thousands of genuine hazards on Halloween, which no one really cares about. For example, road accidents. Your child is three times more likely to be hit by a car on Halloween than any other day, so why not spread a few myths and legends about Halloween car sadism instead? Don't believe everything you hear on the internet, except this video, of course. Throughout this episode, we've criticized the media for misrepresenting reality from time to time. But what does that mean for the foundation of this script? Anecdotes such as Malcolm W.'s misfortune get passed from narrator to narrator, and of course, each adds their own personal 5% of writer's creative freedom. Different versions of a retelling always vary in detail. At some point, it is no longer discernible whether a previous author added a specific piece of information through factual research or poetry. Embellishments. I'm by no means innocent of this either, as the process of research always inheres a good dose of subjective interpretation. When weaving a bunch of facts into a coherent story, small gaps naturally emerge in the fabric, which can only be stitched up by reasoning and some educated guessing. At the same time, you need to balance all of this with the pursuit of making it entertaining. I apologize for this rather lengthy tangent, Simon. You don't need to. I'm I'm often I told a story earlier <laughs> that makes no sense that didn't even have a sensible conclusion it's like okay <laughs> yeah, your tangent will be better than mine almost certainly Dennis but I think methodological transparency is important let me give you an example let's say we know for a fact that a man from the 70s went to a casino every single day and roughly a year into this his house got repossessed by a debt collection agency but compiling these two facts into a script 
it's safe to assume that he lost his home due to a gambling issue and we might also infer that it had been a year of misery um yeah but they're not necessarily it might be more likely that they're connected but maybe his house was foreclosed because he lost his job or i don't know like there could be another reason is what i'm trying to say strictly speaking though this hypothesis is somewhat frivolous he might as well have won a fortune at the blackjack tables thus living the best year imaginable only to then lose it all in the stock market this is like i know this seems obvious there's these tests you know when you apply for jobs and they have the maths test and then they have the something called verbal reasoning where it's like they'll give you a paragraph and then they'll ask you questions about the paragraph like i'm not super big brain like but for some reason <laughs> i remember like going to uh like the the law firms would always ask this like they do these, these quizzes and i would always score like it was like nine beyond the 90 like my my math skills are terrible i'd be like barely passing those just enough to get an interview but the verbal reasoning tests i was like like beyond the 99th percentile but i have no idea what reason like i'm not a particularly great reader i'm not like super super bright but the one thing i'm incredibly good at apparently is verbal reasoning so i would get all sorts of job interviews just because i crush verbal reasoning tests and then they'd be like interview me and they're like you're not that big brain how did you get this job interview it's a verbal reasoning just amazing and i don't know what like my what calling i've missed being some sort of verbal reasoning god but yeah i don't do that i just read scripts (laughs) anyone let me know what can i do with incredible verbal reasoning abilities but my point was these are the sorts of things that ask you like they'd weave a story around this dude going to the casino and then it'd be much more subtle about the dude going to the casino and then him going his house being repossessed and they'd be like you know did donald get his house repossessed because he was gambling and it would be like yes no unclear and i think I'd, it's, it's unclear it's clearly unclear um uh, but people would want to tick yes but that doesn't that seems like you just have to be reasonably i don't know that ends this it's a tangent within a tangent i don't know what to say i'm sorry let's move on these are the compromises you occasionally must make when writing about the obscure and this is especially true for the first two stories as they have been retold countless times despite a very thin supply of primary sources in their essence the events happens the way i reported them i would never take risks with the major cornerstones of a story but when it comes to the finer nuances there is unavoidable room for errors please keep this in mind on decoding the unknown we explore dubious topics by definition definition if there was a broad catalogue of reliable source material we wouldn't write an episode about it i can only vow the utmost care but apart from dr best's data nothing of this lives up to scientific standards thank you for understanding by the way i tried reaching out to malcolm w in order to confirm some details though i'm not 100 percent convinced i haven't got the right person it doesn't matter though because the moment i mentioned that i worked for a guy who had quite a similar experience when he happened to purchase a drug trafficking drone off a prison gang by accident he immediately blocked my number in hindsight i understand why oh my god dude like i know dennis is a fan of my stuff but that is a deep pull that's from like that's gonna be a three-year-old story that i told on one of my other channels uh which i'll retell now for your enjoyment i purchased like a one of those drones you know a, a camera drone or whatever and uh it arrived broken and like one of the rotors just wasn't spinning around so i wrote i bought it off ebay and so i wrote it from some dude in the uk for whatever reason i spent cheap and i wrote to the dude and i was like hey man like one of the propellers is isn't working and he never he didn't reply to me and so i like waited the like two weeks or 20 days or whatever it was for ebay and then i wrote to ebay and was like yo this guy sent me something broken and he never replied to me 
And PayPal are like, cool. We'll send you your money back. No worries. Because um, PayPal and eBay are the same company? I'll look, whatever happens, I got my money back from eBay through PayPal. Okay, cool. And then a few weeks later or a few months later, I get an email from the police. Like, random, like, Sussex police or whatever in the UK. And they're like, it's just, hello, did you buy a drone off eBay? And I'm like what have i done have i committed a crime by asking for a refund from some have i like defrauded this dude somehow because i got a refund because he never replied and he sold me something broken you know that paranoia that enters your mind so i just email the police pal i'm like what's this about and it turns out the dude was part of some gang or whatever who were using drones to fly prison uh, to fly drugs into prisons like putting the drones over and then dropping the drugs into prison yards and they were like, um, the drone had been stolen from some sort of warehouse of drones or whatever. And they were like seeking them back for the insurance company. And I'm like, well, it's in Prague and it's broken. And they're like, can you hold on to it? <laughs> I literally just threw it away like a couple of months ago. Because <laughs> I was like, how long do I have to hold this on? How, hold on to this for? They're like, are they going to come and get it? Suffolk police going to be like, hey, we're here for that drone, the broken drone. And eventually after years and one house move, I threw it away. So that's the fun tangent that's over, but that's the story of my drug drone. Why did I even write this episode? In case you really do enjoy abhorrent crimes, I have good news for you. (laughs) It's a weird statement. Roughly two years ago, Simon covered the Pixie Six killer on his other channel called Biographics, giving you the option to relive this joyful experience from another writer's point of view. I am so small-brained. I knew it sounded familiar, but I was like, I... It's got to be more than two years ago. This is probably one of those things where it was like two years ago, but it was actually three because the the um, the way YouTube works is it says two years until it clocks over onto three years, like a birthday. So that's my excuse. But I vaguely remember this now. Okay. I have decided to completely ignore a certain video called Has anyone ever actually poisoned or put raisins in Halloween candy on Today I Found Out? Yeah, that's another channel I do. That's the one I was definitely remembering and why I kind of knew the answer was no, but I, you know, didn't entirely come forth and say that because it would spoil this video somewhat, although maybe I did at the beginning. I don't know. Oh my god, could I ramble more? We've got like three lines left. Let's get this finished. Is there anything left in the universe that Simon hasn't covered at least twice? (laughs) Steady on. Like, you don't even need to worry about losing your car keys these days, as there's a 90% chance that Simon already did, 20 minute video, did a 20-minute geographics episode chronicling your keys' whereabouts. What a time to be alive. I'm not sure whether to take that as a compliment or an insult, Dennis. But thank you for this brilliant episode. I truly enjoyed this. And thank you, everybody at home, for watching or listening. If you're listening, leave a review. If you're watching, smash that like button. And I'll see you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.